From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCowry, this week in Davidson, North Carolina. On this week's edition, a new generation of sustainable fuels for corporate fleets, why it's time for companies to speak up on sustainability, California's business bulwark on climate change, and is greenwashing silencing the sustainability revolution? Today's podcast is made from 150% recycled material, this week on 350. It's May 26, 2017, the front end of Memorial Day weekend here in the United States. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and with me is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hello from cloudy New Jersey. Speaking of clouds and the opposite of that sunshine, you just came back from a pretty cool trip uh, in Curacao. Uh, for people who don't know where the heck that is, tell us about where you went. Curacao is one of the ABC islands, Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao off of Venezuela. And uh, it's, you know, I have to say, it is an island of, of dichotomies. Um, I went there to scuba dive, and there's a ton of really excellent reef, you know, reef structures off, off one of the coasts. On the other side of the island, though, um, there are a whole bunch of oil refineries. So it's quite, a, it's quite an interesting uh, a set of, like I said, dichotomies. Yeah, I, I noticed that when I uh, was in Trinidad and Tobago, I had a speaking engagement there not that long ago, and it's um, it's off the right off the coast of Venezuela, and the same thing. It's this uh, tropical paradise uh, surrounded by offshore oil derricks, and um, as a matter of fact, the hotel I was staying at seemed to be the headquarters for the people who were helicoptering out to the derricks, and they'd come back, I guess, to shower and shave or whatever. But uh, how was the diving? Was it, uh, I mean, you've been down that way before, I guess, because you're a veteran diver, but is there anything different with the coral reefs or anything did you notice? Well, I, I along the lines of industry. So some of the sites are industrial, if you will. There are sunken objects, um, a tugboat, et cetera, in some of the bays where they've gone in and out. I don't know about if people know this, generally speaking, but there are some really cool sites that are based on human objects, right? People sink things and then beautiful reefs build around them over time. So that's sort of the, the conservation approach they have. But the, the diving is is quite excellent. The reefs are, um, uh, I wouldn't say pristine, but they're certainly on on the, the high side of the, of the healthy scale. Um, Bonaire and Roatan are still my, my top sites, though. And, and one of the ways they create the reefs is, is toppling over some of the uh, old oil derricks from they then the the critters build around that so mm-hmm. I guess that's a I guess that's making a lemonade out of I don't yeah. know <laughs> well I did mention I did mention um, a couple of weeks ago before I went the whole lionfish issue and that that's still quite quite uh, profoundly you know the, the invasive creatures on the reef um, uh, it, that, that that creature being the, the top one I mean the things, when when the female lays eggs, it's like thirty thousand babies, um, and they are taking over. And there are quite a few massive, fat, well-fed lionfish, and and they do try to kill them. And my husband went out and and killed some, and and they have it on the menu there. So they're they're looking for a way to to make that more sustainable, if you will. 
Yeah, it's clearly one of those, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu kind of things. But I have to ask you the obvious question, well, to me, obvious question, it's sort of the bonehead tourist question is, do they drink orange curacao in curacao? You know, I don't recall seeing orange curacao, but I did see yellow, red, blue, green, and many other uh, uh, food colors, if you will. And yes, they do. It's all over the place, and you can even go taste it. I think it all tastes the same. It's just different colors. It's a Curacao rainbow flag. Uh, so, so do the do the colors just? Is that they just? They're not flavors. They're just different visual presentations. I think there must be some flavors, but I have to be honest. I didn't taste them, so I'm not sure. Uh, I'd have to ask my husband. I have to consult my husband on okay, that one. Okay. Well, uh, we'll we'll get back to you, or you'll get back to us, I guess, on that. <laughs> so, Joel. Davidson, North Carolina. What are you doing there? Why not Davidson? Where is Davidson? More important. <laughs> uh, Davidson is just outside of uh, Charlotte, um, about a 30-minute uh, ride from uh, the Charlotte airport. Uh, I'm in Davidson because this is the third of the three meetings we do in May of the Green Biz Executive Network. Um, two weeks ago, you may recall, I was in Washington, D.C. at National Geographic headquarters last week while you, Heather, were in Curacao. Uh, I was up in your neck of the woods in Princeton, New Jersey at the new, brand new headquarters of NRG Energy, uh, the uh, nation's largest independent power producer. Gorgeous building. Gorgeous building. Yeah, I know you were there for this just a couple of days ago this week for a story you're working on for that we'll hear about down the line. This week we're in Davidson. It's at that we're at the world headquarters of Ingersoll Rand. That's a not a well-known company, at least uh, in the public uh, branding. But it's a 110-year-old industrial company whose brands you may know the B2B brands that uh, train air conditioners, mm-hmm. uh, Thermo King refrigerators on big rig trucks, which we know as reefer trucks, uh, club car golf carts, and a whole bunch of other industrial products and services that range from compressors to communications. Um, and while we're down here, uh, aside from having the meeting at headquarters and hearing from uh, their CTO and some of the other executives in, in and out of sustainability, uh, we're doing some uh, Davidson, North Carolina things, specifically NASCAR related. NASCAR? <laughs> is that where the, yeah, is there a big track there? I'm, I'm not a NASCAR person, sorry. Yeah, if you were a NASCAR person, you would know that North Carolina and Charlotte is the is the hub. It's it's the headquarters not only of NASCAR the organization, but uh, it's the Charlotte ah. the Charlotte Motor Speedway is one of the, the the major, if not the main NASCAR track. Although they're all they're all over the country, um, and uh, as we often do at our our G our Green Biz Executive Network meetings, um, we're doing something you know local uh, field trip, and so uh, uh, on Wednesday night. Uh, the night between our two half-day meetings, we had dinner at Roush Fenway Racing. So Jack Roush for 50 years has been a, a major force in NASCAR racing. He's won 31 championships, 400 races in drag racing, sports car, stock car racing. And um, what's really amazing, so we had dinner there. And uh, what's really amazing about visiting these, because we did this a few years ago uh, at the uh, garage of Kyle Busch. You call them garages, but these are like the most elegant auto showrooms ever. This is where they store the cars, where they maintain the cars, which is it's also the public face of each of these drivers and which is or, or driving companies, uh, which are, are big brands uh, in the NASCAR world. So and then 
Uh, last night, Thursday night, we went to the Coca-Cola 600 qualifying race at uh, Charlotte Wonder Speedway. Now, I, uh, if you'd asked me beforehand, I, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't have been able to identify any of those words, words except Coca-Cola. <laughs> but, but um, it, it, it's another one of the races in the NASCAR uh, series. And again, what we were able to do was something kind of fun here, which is you got guided tour through their uh, through all the garages. This is the hallowed ground where teams and drivers prepare for the big race, and and uh, we got a sort of a front row seat before, during, and after the race. And uh, it, it's it's a whole different world down there, although it's a major part of American culture and and sports. Um, so it was a really special experience. Well, so can I say, Joel, along those lines? I think I'm going to get to the go to the Formula E races in uh, Brooklyn in in July. So I've got to do some studying because I don't know exactly what I'm going to be in for, <laughs> but uh, I'm excited about that. So the big surprise there is there's a racetrack in Brooklyn. I didn't know that either. So I got to do some research. Um, but yeah, there's a, a Formula E race plan for mid July, and I've now been invited by two different folks. So I'm thinking I'm going. Uh, and by the way, there's one other thing that going back to the world of sustainability that that we did uh, in as part of this uh, week uh, and part of the Ingersoll Rand experience, we went to their remanufacturing operation in in, in Charlotte, which is where uh, they uh, have a pretty healthy business that's um, sort of under the radar of, of, of a lot of companies, uh, remanufacturing um, uh, motors and compressors um, and uh, turning them back into uh, original equipment. But keeping things in circulation, this is part of the original sort of circular economy companies like mm -hmm. like like caterpillar and others have been doing this kind of thing for years particularly yes. with big industrial equipment but it was great to see uh, how one industrial company is is turning its um its products back into new products keeping those molecules in play and uh you know long before uh, the circular economy was cool they were they were part of it wow yeah. So I'll have a little bit more from Charlotte and Ingersoll Rand a little bit later in this episode. But for now, let's move over to the Week in Review. So Joel, scrambling to catch up, but I had to read this, the stories on the site first thing Monday. And I was so happy to see the piece about California and its, will, if you will, advocacy on behalf of climate progress. I'm on the East Coast, and even I know California is sort of the leader in, in programs and innovation um, on the business side to support climate action. But I really didn't realize how much until I read this piece. 13% you know, job growth, innovations in electric and autonomous vehicles, smart grids, all of this happening um, amid some pretty strict regulations in the state about you know reducing emissions and so forth. So I what can you tell me about this piece? Like, you've been following this much longer than I have, but why is California so well positioned? Well, it's a long story. And first of all, before I get into some of the specifics, I want to just brag a little bit that this story we ran on Monday called uh, The Business Bulwark Behind California's Climate Progress. The day before, the New York Times ran a piece called Fighting Trump on Climate, California Becomes a Global Force. So Love it. props to uh, senior writer Barbara Grady for being yep. on this story and, and uh, beating the New York Times. But uh, this is not, uh, having said that, uh, a new story. In fact, it's quite an old story in the sense that... Um, uh, this is going on since the mid-70s when, when, mm -hmm. when California implemented some pretty significant at the time 
efficiency measures in response to the to the uh, oil embargo back then. And since then, almost for the past nearly 50 years, or certainly more than 40, California's electricity consumption per person has remained essentially flat, while the rest of the country's has increased uh, considerably, about 60%. Mm-hmm. And when you think about all the electronics, uh, you know, computers and, and chargers and, and all those little vampire charger things we have in the wall and just televisions that we used to have one. Now we've got more than one, sometimes many more than one. When you think about that, the fact that California's per person consumption has remained essentially flat, that's pretty remarkable. And that came out of a bunch of different laws around vehicles, around appliances, around buildings. And so I think the the question here is really part of this debate about is regulation good for business? Is it bad for business? Is it kill, kill jobs in the economy? And in fact, California says, no, we've had some pretty strict regulations here around energy and carbon, and our economy is doing pretty damn well. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, in that context that you know, we have now California is either the sixth or seventh largest economy in the world, depending, as, as I like to say, whether France is on strike on any given day. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, positioning itself as a bulwark against the rollback of climate progress and uh, and uh, playing that role that uh, I think, you know, someone's got to stand up for the fact that policy is important and it doesn't have to harm the economy and jobs. Yeah, I think that that is that's a common theme. I mean, for some reason, that is the argument, right? It, you know, clean economy kills jobs. Well, thir- like I said, thirteen percent job growth. Um, now, I will have to challenge this. Like I said, I'm on the East Coast, so uh, you know, we out here get a little sick of uh, hearing about California, and we and California is sometimes seen as being out of touch, right, with with the rest of the country. So I'm wondering what what if you see anything that California could do to help other regions, um, you see any, or other than just being the great leader that it is, do you, do you see any outreach or, you know, how are they acting as a role model? Well, as much as you get tired of hearing about it, we get tired of, of being a lone voice in the, in the at least mm-hmm. the American mm-hmm. wilderness. Um, I mean, what, what's going on is, what needs to happen is what's going on, which is that uh, Governor Brown and other political leaders and some business leaders from Silicon Valley and, and other uh, economic pockets of, of California have been going out and engaging other states, New York and New Jersey uh, and uh some Midwest states and even some Southern states trying to engage them. Uh, certainly other states on the West Coast, Oregon and Washington, notably bringing them into uh, common uh, carbon markets, helping uh, you know bring their, their um, re- regulations or standards, if you will, uh, to other states, you know, helping bring them along. Because if, if, this not, if this is not going to happen from the top down, it's going to have to happen from the bottom up, which means state by state by state. But California being the largest and with uh, about one-tenth of the U.S. population in one state, it's a pretty good place to start. And we don't like to be smug. <laughs> we don't like to, to boast. We, we would not prefer, I think, not to be this, as I said, this uh, one leader out there that's, that is you know sort of unlike most of the other states. Um, and I think that the opportunity here is is you know each one teach one each state bring uh, its leadership and, and and by the way there are leadership activities going on around the country a number of states have great laws around electric vehicles and renewable energy 
and carbon emissions and, and water quality. And so there's an opportunity to build that up. And interestingly, uh, from a political standpoint, um, Scott Pruitt, the head of the EPA, who has been an advocate of states' rights and, and the states, not the federal government, uh, leading the environmental uh, charge. In other words, the EPA only stepping in at the national level where individual st states can't do it alone because it crosses borders or things like that. He's been fighting California <laughs> because right. uh, he says that's more than that's more than uh, you know states' rights. That's, that succeeds that in, in in trying to export the California style to other states. So. You know, it's no surprise that there's a, more than a little hypocrisy going on out there. But but I think this is an important conversation to be having. Yeah. And I, I to your point about the business charge on this uh, and, and energy efficiency in particular, this is where I got my start in covering environmental issues as they pertain to business um, with looking at how all of the tech companies were decreasing their data center consumption and and really paying attention to. Um, you know, the components being used in their, their technology. And it wasn't, it wasn't first a, a sustainability or an environmental or a green strategy. It was a business strategy, an operational, smart, practical operational strategy. That was what was driving it. And so I love that part of it. And I, I'd love to see more um, and hear more of that because I think that has so much credibility, um, again, outside of, um, of the California environment, if you will. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, one of the you know dirty little secrets about uh, sustainable business is, at some level, a lot of this is just about business efficiency dressed up in green. But right. you know, whatever it takes, uh, you know, to to get the message through, and different companies, different individuals, different voters, different consumers uh, respond. You know, to right. personal things, to to money things, to you know, global commons things. So different, but. Uh, the point is, I think we're starting to see uh, an, a small budding movement uh, where companies begin to to work with local government and state government and 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 work on political change. And that takes us to another story we ran yeah. this week. Uh, for us, we have this uh, regular column from uh, an organization called the American Sustainable Business Council. Um, uh, and they're called Policy Matters. And, and this month's column is called How to Break the Political Logjam on Climate Change. And basically, it's about the, again, this grassroots business movement and grassroots, a little bit political movement about looking at how do you uh, bring a carbon tax into play and calling it the best policy tool for cutting carbon because it's easier to plan for by companies, harder to game. Uh, and economically more efficient, and it's not as punitive as a lot of the other uh, more stringent regulatory regimes. And so, you know, there's uh, I've been hearing scuttlebutt, uh, you know, that there's a group of Republicans um, in in Washington and a, and a group of of organizations that have not let's just call them not progressive business organizations that are starting to rally around this as maybe maybe a Republican response to climate change. Um, and so this is a really interesting article talking about how this has be is becoming uh, an issue and how business can support a carbon tax. So the, the whole carbon pricing, carbon tax issue has is actually definitely becoming a more underground movement uh, with the businesses. I don't know. I read the statistic this morning that the number of global companies using an internal carbon price 
has tripled, tripled in the last year. More than 1,000 businesses now are now pricing their carbon emissions. I was pretty staggered by that statistic. And, can, and Heather, can you explain what does it mean for a company to have an internal carbon price? So essentially, you know, understand, and, and actually, I'll, I'll use the example of Microsoft. And I, you know, I, I know we talk about them a lot, but it's, it's, it was such a simple way of doing this. But basically, the company looking at the impact of different operations, the carbon emissions, the other um, footprints related to a specific operation, the manufacturing, the offices, the travel, the, the entire footprint of a, of a division and of the assets of that division and setting, so saying, okay, this is the impact you're having on the world. If, as you reduce that, you know, this, is how, this is what we're going to charge you um, for that impact. And as you bring that impact down, you will be charged less. So pretty simple concept, right? But the idea that you're, you're taking a look at, at that impact on the world and, and understanding how you might be charged in the future for it. So it's a way of, of them understanding and getting their, their, their employees to think about that as an element of their operation. So that's generally what, what you know, I mean, people handle it in different ways, and that's probably going to be part of the, the tricky part over the next whatever years is becoming more disciplined and more standardized and how it gets accounted for because different companies account for it in different ways. But uh, so there is a, a movement, though, going on. Uh, there's a, as I said, the, the piece that we ran, carbon pricing is on the rise, how your business can benefit, does a good job of, of talking about which businesses are leading. There's a number of banks, if you will, in, in uh, Turkey, in India, and so forth. HSBC is another leader in this, but they're, they're looking at it and, and talking to their commercial accounts and understanding their impact as they lend to these companies. What's that? How, how's that going to affect the, the, the terms that a company might get and so forth? They're also starting to work with local governments to help those governments understand, hey, how should you handle this? What, what should you do? What policies should you put in place to support what we're doing to penalize us if we don't do this right? So there's going to be a lot of, I think, pilots on this. There's, there's some laid out in this piece. Um, and this so an underground movement, if you will, that's happening despite the fact that there's very little in, in the United States, at least federal support for this yet. And it's going to be interesting to see how this translates from uh, a bunch of companies, maybe even a hundred or hundreds of companies uh, doing this within uh, within their own operations to a, a policy where this is being done outside of the company walls uh, at the regional or national levels. Or city level. City levels, yeah. That's going to be a, a big jump in how you do that. And is it voluntary or is it mandatory? And if it's voluntary, what, why would somebody want to do it? Mm -hmm. That's going to be a really interesting conversation. And some of these things I've been hearing about have, uh, and, I, and I'm looking to do a story on this, is is, is what are the policy mechanisms that would encourage this? So are there tax credits for carbon reductions? Or, uh, you know, how, how can we do this in a way that aligns with both uh, the left and right? In other words, it's not a new tax. In fact, it might even be a tax credit, it might even lower taxes for doing the right thing. Um, that's going to be a really interesting conversation. Yeah. And I think the energy sector will be a one that we should watch closely. 
Shell, BP, NG, they're all focusing on this. And, um, and I love the fact that NG actually decided not to develop new coal-fired power plants because of what their numbers told them on this. So that's a, a sector that we should watch closely. Speaking of watching closely, I want to talk about a third story that we ran this week that's, boy, it's something I've been interested in for a long, long time. It's called, Is Greenwashing Silencing the Sustainability Revolution? It's by Gareth Redmond King, who's the head of energy and policy, uh, climate policy at WWF. And he brings up this point that I've been talking about for, well, easily 20 years, which is why aren't companies talking more about the good things they do. Why don't we hear more about them? When I talk about uh, at a dinner party, if someone asks me, what do you do? And I talk about what I do and they say, I'll give you some examples and I give them some examples and they say, wow, that's interesting. That's fascinating. Why aren't those companies talking about this? Um, and, you know, here he's talking about companies at UK, uh, companies in particular where he's based, uh, like Tesco, which is just doing some really good things in its operation, but is also, you know, one of the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases in the UK, just because it's it's such a, a big company, a big retailer. And, um, and so that's the question is, you know, it goes back to a question I asked in my 2008 book, I think, uh, Strategies for the Green Economy, which is this, you know, how good is good enough before you get to talk about what you're doing? Yeah, and I think, I think it is the fear that companies don't have black and white messages on this because there are plenty of places. Every time we write a story about Walmart, for example, there's people that shoot holes in, in, in their, poly, you know, we write about progress in one area and people point to the, the things that they need to do in other areas. And I think that's some, that I think holds companies back sometimes because they do know, I mean, you can't be, they're not perfect. They aren't perfect in every area, but I think that they should be talking up their progress on different fronts as well. I think that the time has come for them to get more bold about the fact that they're doing great things. And yeah, we're not perfect. None of us are perfect. I'm sure that you and I both do many things in our our real lives that are not great environmentally. I mean, we just can't, there is no way right now in the world that we live in that we can be perfect. And I think that does hold companies back. And I also, I think part of it is, is the fact that it has become so politicized. Companies, I think some of them fear, if your CEO comes out and talks about why you're doing something, it becomes, oh, well, they're they're a climate denier or they're, you know, they're, oh, they're lefties. You know, they had, it's somehow become a very, you know, too political, I think, in some regards. You know, I, I, and I know there's nothing I can do, I can do or you can do about that. But I think sometimes companies are afraid to say things because they're be viewed as political statements, not as sustainable business statements. Yeah, well, the, the, it's political, but it's also the fact that, you know, our our colleagues in the in the fourth estate, the media, don't help a lot here. Uh, you mentioned yeah. Walmart earlier, and and uh, I did an exit interview back in uh, 2013 with uh, Leslie Dock, who was uh, Walmart's executive VP for corporate affairs and government relations, and he oversaw the company's sustainability effort, uh, efforts, particularly during those early days, 2006 or so, when uh, Walmart really started ramping that up, and. Uh, he said, you know, and, and I hear this from a lot of companies that one of the things that frustrated him, uh, and he's, you know, a veteran of the of the media front, is that um, is that every time they announced something, no matter how bold and audacious or significant, uh, the media would write, 
in an effort to deal with their reputational problems, Walmart today announced blah, blah, blah. And and so that's part of the challenge is that it's this sort of, you know, you have to report both sides or whatever. But there's some other issues too, Heather, because if you think about why aren't companies talking about these things, there's several reasons. One is that most of what companies are doing fall into the category of doing less bad. We're yeah. using, you know, we're emitting less. Where this gizmo has thirty percent fewer toxics than it did last mm-hmm. time. Well, that's it's a beautiful thing, but it means that we're still beating our wife seventy percent of the time, right? You know, it's <laughs> oh, it's God. sorry, it's a, not a good metaphor, but um, you know, it's it's it still says we're just not as bad as we used to be. The other thing is that most of what companies are doing around sustainability aren't part of the value proposition of what they sell. So think about you know this carbon tax or carbon trading internally or zero waste uh, factories. I mean, General Motors has uh, more than 100 zero waste facilities around the world. And I think company-wide, they're in the, nine, in the low 90% waste aversion in all their factories. And again, that's a great thing. And they're, they're making tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars in savings from that. But it's not something you're going to message in a Chevy showroom. And that sort of gets to the third reason, which is that when you talk about what you're doing right, you often you know, stick your head above the parapet and get it shot off. In other words, how dare you, GM, talk about zero-waste factories when you're making internal combustion engines? So as a result, companies just say, well, let's just do these things because for all the right reasons, it it, it, it saves us money, it improves quality, it attracts and retains talent, it mitigates risk, it uh, on and on and on. And let's not even talk about it. And that's the lost opportunity. And I can tell you that there are dozens of sustainability executives in some of the world's biggest companies who are extremely frustrated with this state of affairs. The green hush. Yeah, well, Bob Langert, uh, who's the former sustainability exec at McDonald's and and uh, now a, a editor at large at GreenBiz, uh, coined green muting is his attempt to counter greenwashing, which is that green muting is they were just not talking about it. And, you know, I think that's something that we need to talk about. Now, before we leave this topic, there is another part of this, which is that it's not to say that there's no greenwashing out there. It's not, and in some ways, it's not as big a deal as most people think it is. Most, a lot of people I know, particularly sort of in the lefties, you know, community, uh, think that any good thing that a company talks about, a big company in particular talks about is automatically, you know, greenwash. Uh, it's not. I mean, greenwash means that they're they're saying one thing and doing another. And I think, I, I just disagree with that notion that everything is yeah. greenwash. But having said that, the sustainable development goals, which are these 17 goals pro- promulgated by uh, almost 200 countries in the United Nations and is now starting to become uh, a business, uh, underlying business strategy about you know ending hunger and all these things, 17 goals, 192 specific targets within there. I talk to companies now who say, oh, yeah, we're working on eight or nine of those goals. Yeah, uh, you're not. You're, what you're doing is you're mapping. You give some money to a hunger group or you do some food wasting. So you're saying, OK, we check the box on ending global yeah. hunger. Um, and yeah, so I think this is going to be an interesting area to watch. This is a story I want to also get to at some point is, you know, will this, the SDGs, as they're known, uh, unleash this this uh, new wave of greenwashing? So, <laughs> you know, yeah. sad but true. But we'll see about yeah. that.
Let's switch gears now to the world of transportation tech. This week, senior writer Lauren Hepler took a closer look at a new initiative that brings together the corporate fleet managers at big companies like Amazon, PepsiCo, Walmart, and UPS. The goal, speed up the market for alternative fuels and heavy-duty electric vehicles. Lauren, first, welcome to the show. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. So, Tell me what's going on here. Tell me a little bit more about the initiative, who's behind it, and what's the goal? Yeah, so this is a pretty interesting development um, from the nonprofit business membership group Business for Social Responsibility. You might know them as our friends at BSR. Um, they've been working in this area, sort of the future of fuels, as they call it, for a long time. Um, and it's a concept that's sort of been around for a while, and it's either biodiesel, biomass, just alternatives to traditional diesel-powered semi-trucks and medium-duty delivery-type vehicles that a lot of companies use. But the new effort is called the Fuel Buyer's Principles, and the concept might ring a bell after the World Resources Institute and World Wildlife Fund started the Corporate Renewable Buyer's Principles for Clean Energy a couple years back. But the goal here is similar with transportation, to bring together large companies, you mentioned a few of them, Amazon, Pepsi, Walmart, UPS, they hope that number will be up to 10 or 15 companies by end of year, but to bring them together to try to grow the market for cleaner fuels and electric trucks, and also sort of in real terms to get new pilot projects off the ground, produce specific case studies and other sort of research on the market for non-traditional fleets essentially. Um, so I did talk to Nate Springer of BSR, who manages the Future of Fuels initiative, and here's what he had to say about the new buyer's principles. And so we began a few years back around the idea of building research and pulling all of that research together in a credible fuel neutral way. And that helped companies like Walmart and UPS then to understand what some of the impacts were, but they didn't necessarily know then what to do and how to make decisions about it. So. Uh, about uh, two years ago, we took all of that information and distilled it into uh, a, uh, a working tool, a fuel sustainability tool uh, that for the first time gave uh, corporate free fleets the ability to compare the climate benefits of investments in efficiency and lower carbon fuels in an apples-to-apples way. Now, that ended up solving the problem it was designed for, and our fuel tool, our Future of Fuels members are already using it. Uh, but we also needed a way to build critical mass and provide an easy on-ramp for companies to who companies committed to this path uh, to get them uh, a way for, for to to build their efforts, to combine their efforts, and a way to join and and bring others into and learn from from others in the uh, in the process. So it has changed the converse. So the conversation has changed in important ways, and the fuel principles specifically are 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 changing the the conversation such that people now see the sustainable fuel buyers principles as a platform for fleet owners, for freight owners such as retailers and major brands to signal demand, to engage suppliers, and to clarify needs for sustainable road freight. Very smart. I and mean, we, we've definitely seen this type of collaboration taking shape in other sectors. So it's very encouraging to see that the transportation space um, is also looking at this as, as a way of spurring innovation, if you will. How, what do you know about how close to market these technologies are? There's actually a bit of a disconnect here at the moment. So like I said, we've been hearing for years about biodiesel, biomass, most notably in recent years, the influx of natural gas in the fuel market. But there are really still surprisingly few resources that sort of 
stack these different fuel options up against one another in a way that's useful for corporate fleets to gauge things like the the fuel that will work best for longer term routes, what's compatible with existing machinery and and trucking equipment, um, and what obviously is most cost effective. So one of the the big problems is this information gap and sort of a lack of data on real-world usage. I talked about this sort of ever-evolving fuel landscape with Mike O'Connell at PepsiCo, who is the company's senior supply chain director for fleets and sustainability. And here's what he had to say about managing their fleet. So we're one of the larger private fleets in the United States, and um, therefore it's a critical component of our supply chain, as you can imagine, getting our product from our manufacturing facilities to the marketplace. As far as sustainability, we have a PepsiCo strategy that focuses in on our environmental footprint, and we've been working for a lot of years to improve that um, environmental footprint across our fleet. So we've done things with natural gas vehicles, electric vehicles, high-efficiency diesel vehicles, and we've done a ton of work related to the efficiency. You know, the most fuel-efficient thing to do is eliminate the use of the fuel, right? So if we can eliminate the mile, if we can eliminate the use of the fuel through better technology and a more fuel-efficient vehicle, if we can completely eliminate it is one aspect, right? And then you get into the relationship with the Future of Fuels BSR team, which is with the fuel that we have left that we haven't optimized out of the system, how do we make that fuel um, and manage the fuel portfolio, if you will, to be as clean as possible. And that's a pretty big undertaking. If you go back, you know, lots of years on the electric grid when first green energy first became an important part of the energy market, you know, nobody knew the profile of the energy and how green or how clean it was or how dirty it was. Now today, if you fast forward, every state, you know the profile of the cleaner states with the energy grid. I think that's a little bit where fuels is at when you go back years ago. Um, fuel today is, you know, there's some known differences between types of diesel fuel, between CNG and diesel fuel and renewable. But within those sectors, there's difference in profile of the fuel we use. You know, framing the conversation as one about a suite of different fuel options makes sense logically. But aren't there some shades of green here when we talk about the emissions associated with each of these alternative fuels? I mean, there's very different fuel propositions and, and, and green propositions with each one of these options, right? Definitely. And that's one dynamic I was really interested in as well. You think about sort of the supply chain for different fuel sources. Obviously, with natural gas, a lot of environmentalists have have major concerns. But even when you're talking about like electric procurement, depending on where you're getting your electric power from, the grid in some places is much more powered by coal and fossil fuel burning sources than in um, certain locations where there might be more renewables in the mix. So you really have to think place specific in terms of all of this. But I think the bigger question is sort of how much of this is incremental progress and how much stands to really make a dent in truck emissions, which 
the EPA does estimate accounts for almost a quarter of all U.S. transportation emissions, so not a paltry uh, amount of carbon we're talking about. Um, one person I posed this question to was Elizabeth Frontheim, who's the Director of Logistics Sustainability at Walmart, and she said a lot of her focus in recent years has been on doubling the efficiency of their fleet of 6,400 tractors in 60,000 trailers. So we're talking about a huge pool of vehicles. And in recent years, they've been doing light weighting, improving aerodynamics, experimenting with tires, retraining their drivers. Um, so sort of trying to do what they can with existing equipment, though their fuel portfolio is still quote, almost exclusively diesel, as she told me. Um, that's going to have to change, most likely, as Walmart embarks on the bid they recently announced to cut 1 billion metric tons of greenhouse gas from their supply chain by 2030. So Fredheim said that they've been thinking about alt fuels for years, but haven't yet found a solution. So this is really sort of an inflection point for figuring out how to fill that gap to reach more ambitious emissions reduction goals. What about the question of doing away with fuel altogether and going all in on the idea of electric everything? Right. So this is an idea you hear about a lot more often on the consumer side with obviously Tesla's increasingly mainstream popularity and lower cost vehicles from automakers like Chevy hitting the market. And even with tech companies like Uber and Google talking about electric self-driving cars, um, it does get more complicated, though, on the freight side, where things like range anxiety and downtime for charging is a lot more expensive. The infrastructure can be harder to figure out, um, especially if you're dealing with charging a lot of big trucks in like a distribution space. You could run into trouble with the utilities in terms of how much power you're using and what that's going to cost you. Um, so I talked about some of this with Mike O'Connell of PepsiCo. Uh, in terms of where the market for supersized EVs is now and where it might be headed. So we have a couple hundred full electric medium duty. So it's not the class eight, it's the um, box trucks. We've really learned a lot about that. We continue to work on an electrification strategy. Um, the challenge has been the industry is just not there, right? There's not a product that fleets can buy today that's full electric. I'm very optimistic about what's coming in the near future across all classes, frankly, class three through, you know, maybe even class eight eventually, but certainly through class six in regard to electrification where the adoption curve from, um, you know, the automotive industry will start to grow, the technology is improving, and it'll be something that we can do. Now, in, your, in reference, I think that really, if you start with an electrification portfolio, it'll be, it'll be electric plug-in it'll be hybridized, there'll be solutions, but it'll really meet the drive cycle, right? So on some of my routes, I'll have a full electric and that'll work perfectly. On some of my routes, I may need a range extended, so I need a hybrid electric vehicle, right? Plug-in hybrid. So it'll be a mix. You know, I use the example, if you go back 10 years ago, or even maybe a little further, you had a couple of options when you bought a vehicle, a four-cylinder, six-cylinder, and eight-cylinder engine, and it was a combustion engine regardless, right? I think the future, there still will be combustion engines with certain fuel usage, right, whether it be gasoline or diesel, which is why the buyer's principles and the fuel is still important. But you'll also have, you know, electric, electric vehicles, natural gas vehicles, range extended electric vehicles, and you'll have way more powertrain options to meet the needs of a delivery fleet. Well, Lauren, thanks for your dispatch for this edition of... 350 
and I uh, appreciate you joining us this week. Thanks, Heather. As we said earlier in this episode, I'm here in Davidson, North Carolina, the headquarters of Ingersoll Rand. And uh, we just heard from uh, Paul Commuti, who's the Senior Vice President of Innovation and Chief Technology Officer here at Ingersoll. And Paul, you talked a little bit about um, uh, innovation being part of your title, but how does innovation and sustainability, how do they play together at Ingersoll in making all of the uh, equipment and services that you offer? Yeah, so um, sustainability for Ingersoll Rand is uh, sort of woven into everything that we do. It's part of our strategy. It's how we differentiate ourselves in the market. It's what we do internally in our factories. And um, so as we think about innovation, which is really doing something new that's creating value for our customers, um, sustainability really is the lens that we're looking for ideas uh, to mature into these innovations that reach our customers. So is this the market talking to you? Because obviously innovation is always about improving the one before. Does the market asking you to create solutions that have some, whether they use the word sustainability or not, uh, that's part of the outcome? Yeah, I don't know uh, so much that the market asks us, right, that it, uh, part of what our innovation system is is really understanding the jobs that our customer uh, need to get done and how we can help facilitate a better way of doing that. And so our, our what we call product growth teams are out working with customers in markets, understanding how our products are used, where there's opportunities uh, for improvement, maybe what our competitors are doing. And with that understanding, then we're working with our customers, our suppliers, and you know, gathering these ideas from all over on how to create a better uh, working situation or how to improve um, a job that our customer is trying to get done. And, and of course, we want to do that with minimizing the impact or making dramatic improvements in how we're consuming resources or impacting the environment or our local communities through that. So sustainability really is a lens under which we're managing those ideas, which is really how we would describe what we do with innovation. And is the market responding at all, or do they just uh, is that just a background uh, concept for them, they don't see it directly, but uh, are they responding to the kinds of things that you think are, uh, can you call sustainable? Right, and so so that's a good question about, you know, how do we, how is the market perceiving it or is there a pull for this? Well, we, you know, I don't talk about markets as desiring anything. Markets are made up of individual customers and consumers, and just like you would expect, there's a broad range of customer uh, desires. And so, yeah, there's a set of customers who are, you know, like we are, who are committed to their sustainability journey, and they're going to seek out those best-in-class sustainable solutions. Um, but that's still not the majority of the market, and so we have to be kind of commercially relevant for everybody else. This paints a little bit of a higher bar for what we do, but I don't think that there's a trade-off in our solutions. And, I, in fact, we work hard to make sure that there isn't a trade-off in having a sustainable product or service and being competitive and providing the best value for the customer. And no one wants to pay extra for it either, right? At the end, I don't think anybody wants to pay any extra, and that gap has closed uh, almost completely now. 
one of the things that you said you're excited about is is life cycle extension of products, and and you've got this remanufacturing operation in Charlotte that um, is uh, something that you said you're kind of excited about, and it's really kind of an interesting idea of taking uh, the kinds of equipment, big industrial equipment, um, and and keeping it going. Is this a profitable venture for you all? Yeah, so the, the, the remanufacturing uh, center is, is one of my personal favorites because the team is really engaged. They're very creative, in, uh, and they see uh, things that uh, have been out in the field or in the wild for quite some time. And so you think about uh, machinery that was made 40 years ago that's still operational that we can bring back and repurpose. I don't know if I just get nostalgic about that or whatnot, but um, you know, people who designed that, manufactured it, made it, operated it, and now have the opportunity to bring it back and, and reuse it, that I think is just a really uh, exciting and cool part of what we do. But it really is because we're connected to those that equipment, right? We'll service that equipment, we'll uh, go through the complete, complete life cycle and and then um, start the, cu the customer on a new journey, uh, maybe on a new life cycle. Um, and yeah, that, that is a profitable thing for us because our customers want to get that utilization out of that equipment in a high-performing way. Uh, there's not only life cycle extension opportunities there, but there are efficiency uplifts, and we can bring and retrofit new technology on old systems to make them work better. And uh, I think anything that we do to maximize that value for our customers ends up being a profitable thing for us to do. And maybe get another 40 years out of it. Paul Commuti, uh, Senior Vice President in Innovation and Chief Technology Officer for Ingersoll Rand. Thanks so much for talking to us. Great. Thank you. President Donald Trump has acted swiftly to threaten countless Obama-era climate policies through a series of executive orders that jeopardize the National Park System, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act. His new budget proposal confirms matters. The Trump administration is seeking to eliminate many federal programs that support investments in clean energy, energy efficiency, and other initiatives meant to combat climate change. The corporate sustainability community faces a series of major moral and strategic questions. Regardless of your political party, how loudly should each of us speak out against these potential changes? Which issues are you willing to fight for? And will our voices even be heard? On that last question, the answer appears to be yes. Despite the overwhelmingly negative climate in Washington, it appears that some members of Congress are willing to listen. GreenBiz correspondent Mike Hauer, a member of the Edelman Business and Social Purpose team, was in Washington earlier this month and he filed a great story about the coming new age of, quote, brand activism, end quote. Mike, thanks for joining GreenBiz 350. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You wrote, many forward-thinking brands often are conspicuously silent when it comes to calling for smart decisions on more mundane environmental policies that will make or break our ability to mitigate climate change. Why do you think companies remain silent? Well, I would say, to be in a more optimistic note, we're seeing a lot more businesses talk about stuff they didn't normally talk about since the election of Trump. You know, like more than ever, we've been hearing companies 
um, right, you know, lending their voice to, to support the Paris Agreement, especially since, you know, we're, we're waiting any day now to, to hear what happens on that front, whether we're going to stay in it or not. There's the business backed Slow Carbon USA, which uh, over a thousand businesses have signed on to, you know, top companies. These aren't, these aren't uh, you know, traditional, you know, tree hugging businesses necessarily that are saying they want us to stay in the Paris Agreement and they want strong climate action from part of the U.S. So you, you see a lot of that from, from kind of these more headline grabbing issues like climate change. And there's also been a lot of action um, on, you know, the protection of public lands, which is great. But one of the things I noticed was that elected Republicans are trying to gut, you know, environmental laws without actually having to repeal them. Uh, so a lot of these, I don't need to get into the details of the legislation, but there's a lot of bills going, going through Congress right now that would pretty much make it impossible to enforce a lot of things that we take for granted, you know, like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. And this is a topic that the way it's framed, I think it would be really hard for a business to, to, to really talk about it uh, in a traditional way, because it's not, it's not something that they're, you know, if you're a consumer facing business that your, your consumers might really, you know, be ramped up about, you know, it's, a lot of people get inspired by climate change action, but, you know, you're not going to be sending out press releases on regulatory reform unless you're a really niche business. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, if you connect it to a consumer issue, like, okay, I mean, it's just, you don't have to get in the weeds, but if this reform is going to affect my water or my air or my, my kid has asthma, I mean, like, wh how, what can help change that? Right? How can you turn that regulatory um, minutiae into a real issue for, I mean, is that what people are, gra businesses are grappling with right now, how to turn it into a, a meaningful kind of tangible impact on on the the citizens of the United States well honestly from what I'm seeing is that a lot of these companies are, are you know they've got a lot of issues to deal with already and I think for them even just having a statement on climate change is all they feel like they can do but I guess the way the, what I meant in this article was I've written about this in the past of this that you know, we're seeing the, this the rise of the brand activists you know throughout the country especially you know we're in a time where a lot of stakeholders are, are expecting companies to say something, even if it's just to, to say, yeah, I, I'm against that, because silence is, is often seen as, you know, silent compliance with, with, with whatever's going on. Right. And so brands can't afford to just be quiet on an issue like they used to. Like they, a lot of companies might have been in the past might have said, hey, you know, it's better just to be quiet and, you know, let whoever else talk about it and they'll take the risk. But now you're taking a risk by being silent. So you, you're kind of it's one of those that kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't situations. Um, so the way I the way I look at it is like, you don't need. Obviously, there's two, there's so many issues going on at, at any time. You can't possibly hope for a company to have a position on every every tiny legislation that's going through Congress. But I think it's really important um, for companies, and I, I would say this applies to the whole idea of brand activism in general, is that you don't have to be an activist on every issue, but this is why you know, your company needs to have a, a very strong sense of purpose of you know why you exist or what are the issues relevant to you and your, your stakeholders. And if you have that locked down, then you, you'll kind of know which issues matter and which actual legislation maybe you should be focused yeah. on. So you tie your you tie your cultural purpose to the issues that you should because that I mean I was thinking oh my god there's so many different issues you could get on on about right or you could really how do you focus is it by tying it to that that purpose if you will exactly so you know you if you're a company that deals with access to the outdoors then maybe you know right now one of your big issues would be 
protecting our our national parks, which are currently you know, under threat because uh, the president has called national parks federal land grabs. So that's something that you know you could focus on, and and, and something is you could do something as simple as sending out a tweet or a Facebook post that engages your you know, your customer base or whatever stakeholders on doing on doing something. You know, write your local legislator or you know call a senator this kind of civic engagement now is it's it's not you shouldn't be seen as a risk but as an opportunity to uh, to to really show your leadership on issues that are relevant to your brand and you know also make a difference what gives you hope that anyone's actually going to listen like washington seems like a faraway place you go there you have all these ideals is there anyone actually listening I'll say, you know, it's it's easy to get cynical and thinking that, you know, senators and, and, and congressmen don't in D.C. don't care about what we have to say. But at the end of the day, that's we still live in a democracy and these and these people, they really do care what we have to say. They care about what their constituents have to say. And so, you know, when you look at it from a, from like a, a macro level, yeah, it's really hard to feel like you can make a difference. But if you're you know, if you're a big business in your in your district. I guarantee you that your your elected representative cares about what you have to say, and especially in in, in the aggregate, you know, if there's a lot if there's a lot of businesses and you're in a district phoning or or, or making a ruckus, you're going to have your representative listen. And when I was on the Hill, we uh, we spoke with a couple senators, and and one of the one senator said something I thought was really interesting. He was saying, you know, I w- I would love to see more CEOs send us letters, um, you know, throwing their support behind you know, some of these more he didn't use mundane, but I'll say mundane bills that, you know, don't get a lot of public attention. And he also said, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you, you think that Congress is full of climate deniers, but actually there's a lot more, uh, a lot, a lot of even, even elected Republicans that actually want to do something. They, they really would love to, to, you know, vote for climate change, mitigation, adaptation policies, but they need the political cover, which means that they need their, they need support. So they need, if they if they got a, you know, a thousand phone call, a thousand letters from CEOs and from interest for powerful companies and their constituents that could give them the cover they need to maybe vote away that you know right now isn't isn't the parsing thing to do. You when you were actually if I recall correctly when you were in Washington that was when the methane rule was was considered correct. Yeah, you know, as, as you now know, it was we voted to uh, to maintain the Obama era regulations on methane, which is great. It's one of those one of those uh, topics that often doesn't make the headlines, but it you know if we don't address methane, it's not really gonna, you know, it's not gonna we're not gonna reach our, our greenhouse gas reduction goals. And so yeah, it was really great to see that a couple of elected Republicans voted uh, you know against the partisan um, direction to uphold these regulations. So one last question: What's next? Are there more lobbying days planned, and how can a business take action? You know, we can focus on the federal level, but there's a lot of opportunities for, for, for people and companies to get more involved at the local level and the state level. And there's a lot of action happening at the state and local level. And I think that's also what's probably going to be our, you know, it's been our, it's been our best. But even even the last eight years, you know, co- Congress has not been necessarily uh, very activist on the climate side. So I think I would say for businesses to find ways to, you know, maybe even even set up a meeting with your with your local representative, because. Representatives love to, if anything, they love to hear from the business community. So, you know, maybe set up a meeting with your local representative and just maybe be like, hey, you know, what what are the issues that you're working on right now? And maybe tell tell them, hey, you know, these are the things that we care about. 
um, even if you don't have an in-house counsel on on policy, I mean, these are all things that you can you can uh, you know learn on your own by you know researching. And there's also you know getting involved with you know American Single Business Council or one of these other uh, groups that are focused on this, and just finding how you can how you can lend your voice you know, to this growing chorus of companies that are speaking out saying. You know, we we want regulatory certainty. That's what businesses all want. We want you know we want a, a a clean world where we can do business without destroying the planet. Mike, thanks for visiting the Green Biz 350 studio, and I look forward to hearing more about this issue in the weeks to come, especially about the success stories. Always happy to be here. Thank you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to Green dot com slash 350 and you'll find not only past shows but more about the organization stories and events we've mentioned in this episode thanks to our podcast director stephanie joyce send us an email if you've got a suggestion a criticism anything you want to tell us 350 at greenbiz.com we always love to hear from you and we'll see you back here next week for another edition of green biz 350 from all of us here at green biz group i'm joel mccower thanks for listening we'll see you next time 